I wonder if the term fifth columnist had been around in the first century, whether Jude would have used it in his letter to the believers. A fifth column is a group of people who clandestinely infiltrate a larger group, such as a nation, from within. A key tactic of the fifth column is the secret introduction of supporters into the whole fabric of the group or the nation under attack. It was a term that originated in Spain in the 1930s when Emilio Mola, a nationalist general during the Spanish Civil War, told a journalist that as his four columns of troops approached Madrid, a fifth column of supporters inside the city would support him and undermine the Republican government from within. Today, as we look at Jude, one of the shortest letters in the New Testament, we come across a strong warning against those who might possibly be identified as Satan's fifth columnists in the early church. So watch out. See how they're described. So you might like to turn to that page um, 1231, uh, the, just before Revelation. And although the book of Job is short, there's a great deal packed into it. And today we're just looking at the first 13 verses, and the rest will be considered next Sunday morning. Jude begins his letter by clearly identifying himself. He's a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. First and foremost, Jude says he's a servant of Jesus Christ, one who's absolutely devoted to Jesus as his Lord and Saviour. He's also a brother of James and probably a half-brother of Jesus. And although James and Jude were half-brothers of Jesus, they didn't follow him at first. But later, they both became leaders in the early church and outspoken witnesses for Jesus. Acts 15 tells us that James became the head of the church in Jerusalem. And it's thought that Jude travelled as a missionary with his wife, having been one of those that met the risen Lord um, in the upper room after the resurrection. As you know, both Jude and James wrote letters, and they both begin them in the same way. James wrote a letter around AD 47, but was martyred 15 years later in AD 62, just three years before Jude felt this urge to write a letter, to put pen to paper, and to exhort all believers around the known world to hold on to the truth in the face of false teaching and to actively contend for the faith. In fact, we see from verse 3 that Jude was very eager to write to the believers about the joyous salvation they shared. But instead, he felt he had to warn them about certain immoral men circulating around the churches who were perverting the grace of God. And it was evident that these uh, teachers, these false teachers, were becoming a real problem in the early church, in many of them. In fact, 2 Peter was written about the same time, 
and it covers much of the same uh, issue. We'll see from verse 4, which is really our key verse, that these false teachers had secretly slipped in among the believers and were endangering the believers' faith. They were trying to convince the believers that being saved by grace gave them license to sin. How was that? Well, their reasoning must have been, since I've been saved by God's grace, all my sins, past, present and future, will no longer be held against me. So I'm free to do as I like. Their thinking being, whatever I do, if I sin, God will forgive me. Jude felt he had to write to the believers to say this thinking was not true to the gospel and that they needed to be on their guard against anyone who promoted such teaching and who took advantage of the forgiveness of Jesus to live immoral and self-indulgent lives. He points out that despite acknowledging Jesus as saviour, these false teachers were actually godless people, their actions denying Jesus as sovereign and Lord of their lives. I wonder if you've ever thought of that. Jesus is saviour, but the question is, is he actually Lord of, lives to, of our lives too? Jude says, in short, that those who perverted God's grace in this way and taught others to do so would face severe punishment from God. And as you've already seen, he goes on to give illustrations of God's people who disobeyed God in the past and consequently faced his wrath and destruction. Perhaps in our laissez-faire culture today, where almost anything goes, as far as lifestyle is concerned, it's a timely reminder that whoever we are, Christian or non-Christian, we will one day be accountable to God for our lifestyle and our actions. A non-Christian friend said to me only last week, there's a lot of religions out there. You just need to pick one you fancy. That's what she said. But how wrong she is. For Jesus states quite clearly, recorded in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All religions don't lead to God, only faith in Jesus. So Jude urges the believers to join in the struggle for that faith which God had entrusted to his people once and for all. He uses the word contend, a very topical and Olympian term, to strive, to stretch themselves in opposition, like a hurdler defending his title. And they were to be energetic in the defense of their faith in order to gain their inheritance, eternal life with God. We too are called to stand against society's desire to water down the gospel. The Christian gospel is our prized possession. Contending for the truth of it 
is laid down by Jesus once for all. And it will involve hard work, diligent Bible study, and a willingness to speak up for the truth so that it can be passed down to other generations. The concept of God's grace is a fundamental truth of our Christian faith. So what is it? What is the fundamental truth of God's saving grace? We believe that we are saved from our sins, not by anything we do, not by our achievements, nor our piety, nor our good works, but purely through the goodness and grace of God by sending his only son Jesus into the world to pay the penalty of our sin by his death on the cross. And if we come to Jesus and repent of our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not something we can do for ourselves so that we owe our whole lives, our freedom from God's condemnation, our hope for the future, everything to him. We sang earlier about the amazing, the um, wonderful grace of God. What God has done for us is simply amazing. When we become Christians, he, uh, he, Jesus not only becomes Savior, but he becomes Lord. And he gives the gift of his Holy Spirit to live within us, empowering us to love him in return and to live in a way that honors him. But Jude says to the believers, watch out. There are Satan's fifth columnists among you who would seek to undermine your allegiance to Jesus as sovereign and Lord. And they are heading for hell, eternal punishment. Jude then illustrates with the, the severity with which God views disobedience by reminding the readers of God's judgment in the past. And we'll go through verses 5 to 11. First of all, there are the unbelieving Israelites. It's very helpful um, to have that quick glimpse of, um, with Diana's quiz there. The unbelieving Israelites who did not believe that God would give them the land of Canaan. Consequently, all the unbelieving adults died in the desert without entering the promised land. Out of the original exodus from Egypt, only Caleb and Joshua and their families entered Canaan. Then there were certain angels who once lived pure lives in God's presence, who left their positions of authority and joined Satan to rebel against God. Jude says these sinful angels have been kept in a place of punishment until the great day of judgment when they will face their final doom. The implication here is that God did not spare his angels from judgment and punishment, neither would he spare the false teachers. Then they had the example of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns, which were so full of sin and perversion that they were destroyed by fire and wiped clean off the earth. Like it or not, all those who do not seek forgiveness from God will face 
eternal darkness. In these first three examples, Jude warned all who rebel against God and who ignore and reject him that they will be punished. And then in verse 8, there are the false teachers who Jude calls dreamers, referring to their use of dreams and visions for the sources of their prophecy. And here Jude indicts them on three counts. First, he says, they pollute their own bodies. Like the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, they followed whatever their sinful desires led them. In other words, if you fancy it, do it. The false teachers taught that Christian freedom placed Christians above moral rules. Is that true? No. Jude states that no one living in such a way should speak for God. And by actually doing so, these false teachers brought judgment upon themselves. Jude's brother James in his letter says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So those of us who teach, perhaps in our home groups or in other groups, or preach, whether up front or in small groups, must be diligent in our study of the scriptures so that we do not lead others astray. And we have to also make sure that our lifestyle and our actions line up with what we teach. Jesus is not only to be saviour, but he is to be Lord. All in all, Jude was emphasising that these false teachers were immoral, insubordinate, and irrelevant, irreverent, I beg your pardon, irreverent men. He hardly needed to say more. The believers had no reason to either listen to or follow such people. And then we have the rather odd illustration of the archangel Michael in conflict with Satan over the body of Moses. Where does this come from? This illustration is not recorded in scripture, but comes from an ancient apocryphal book called The Assumption of Moses. And it was obviously known to those early believers. The point of this illustration is that if even a powerful angel of God did not dare to speak a judgment on God's behalf, then neither should the false teachers claim to speak for God when truly they knew nothing about him. Many of these false teachers claimed to possess superior secret knowledge that gave them their authority. Yet, by their slander of angels, they revealed their profound ignorance. And their only understanding was by instinct how to fulfill their sexual desires. And these were the very things that would destroy them. Hmm. It's, it's quite hard work, isn't it, listening to all of this. So how might we dis- discern false teachers or teaching today? We're going to use the PowerPoint. Here are some pointers. You could ask, 
Does this teaching stress man-made rules and taboos rather than God's grace? Another question you might ask would be, does this teaching elevate self-righteousness, honoring those who keep the rules rather than elevating Christ? Or does this teaching stress secret knowledge or special visions rather than the word of God? False teachers frequently consider themselves to be the only ones to truly understand God. I know a man who was sidetracked from the truth for several years by joining a group where the leader had special visions and who refused to be accountable to any church. So beware any who claim to be an elite group and neglect Christ's universal church. Another question you might ask is, does this teacher or teaching disregard the family rather than holding it in high regard as the Bible does? And what does the teaching have to say about relationships within the group? Does it foster a critical spirit towards others? Or does it exercise discipline discreetly and lovingly? There are some questions you might like to ask if you find yourself in a situation where you're wondering, is this teaching, is this group kosher, if you like? Is it of the truth? The false teachers Jude warns against rejected the lordship of Christ, undermined the faith of others, and led people astray. These teachers had taken the most precious gift, the grace of God, put it in their back pocket, and given themselves permission to be sexually immoral. Jude cites three further classic examples of men from the Old Testament who had lived as they pleased and been punished for doing so. Verse 11, like Cain in Genesis 4, who murdered his brother, the false teachers were without love. They defied God's authority and acted out of their own sinful passion. Like Balaam in Numbers 22 to 24, who prophesied out of greed, they used religion for, for financial gain and personal enhancement. And like Korah, in Numbers 16, they rebelled against God's divinely appointed leaders. And in a final round of vivid pictures taken from nature, Jude says these false teachers were like shepherds who fed only themselves. How different from Jesus, the good shepherd, He says they are like waterless clouds, clouds carried along by the winds. In other words, all show and no substance. They're like autumn leaves, twice dead. They are autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, uprooted, as good as dead. 
they would face eternal punishment. They would be thrown on the fire and burnt. They are like wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, noisy, restless, spewing out debris which could be exposed for all to see. And finally, they were like wandering stars, like shooting stars, which appear briefly across the sky and then disappear forever into darkness. These false teachers offered no true direction and no light. What a roller coaster of illustrations. The false leaders were damned. If we believe as we do that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, what is this book of Jude to teach us? I believe the message of this first half of Jude is as relevant today as it was then. Three things. Jude urges us to watch out for Satan's fifth columnists, those in the churches who try to make Jesus less than King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Secondly, hold on to the truth of the precious grace of God and honour him in our lives as sovereign and Lord. When Jesus is Lord, it makes a difference to how we speak and how we act. And thirdly, contend for the true faith as revealed in the Bible, rejecting any compromise of the basics of the faith. And how, how are we to do this? We must build ourselves up in our understanding of God and his word by reading the Bible regularly, both together and personally, so that we are able to reject all false teaching and to stand up for the truth. But most importantly, we're to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, for he alone is the author and the finisher of our faith. Christianity without Christ is not Christianity. And so let's pray for one another that our faith may not fail and not be compromised. Are we going to agree to do that? Let's pray for one another. And we'll just pray now. Lord Jesus, you have poured out the riches of your grace on us. Thank you so much for your astounding grace, for giving up your life for each one of us. Strengthen us now by the power of your Holy Spirit so that you will live in our hearts by faith and so that we will not compromise our commitment to you by the way we live day by day. Give us courage to contend for the truth of the gospel and fill us up again with joy so that we will live to your praise and glory. Amen.